Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. This economy is not working. And it's not because I'm an economist or it's not because I'm a conservative. It's not because I somehow want to say, hey, let's let's never make Joe Biden look good. It's because I'm affected by it like you're affected by it. This argument that a conversation about the economy is a political argument only comes from the White House when they make it political. For the rest of us, it's about real life. The differences between Wall Street and Midwest Main Street are absolutely positively massive, and yet somehow they are still constantly and consistently ignored. And we get a jobs report today that shows that job growth totals are 236,000 from the month of March, nearing expectation as the hiring pace slows down. And you see the market say, oh, you see, or either the layman saying, see, the markets, they're hitting expectations. Everything's good. Good. My gosh, this economy is pretty blank and far from good Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Dr. Matt Will joins us right now, economist, University of Indianapolis. He sends me uh, texts uh, sometimes. Uh, he he thinks that, you know, I need even more information than I'm, already, than I'm already getting, sir. And he sends me from the Institute for Supply Management this r- report. I, I, I've got it here. I want to... I Put this so everybody can see it and, and, and understand it. Here it is right here. The March manufacturing PMI registered 46.3%, 1.4 percentage points lower than recorded in February. The, regarding the overall economy, this is the fourth month of contraction after a 30-month period of expansion and it goes on from there. You look at this, Dr. Will. You see the jobs report that's out today. Then you take a look at this. What is this telling you? Well, Tony, I talk about this all the time. In fact, I mentioned it on your show. It's one of those reports that are very important to me because it's not a government report. This is a real-time business survey that comes out every single month. So it's what is happening in the streets right now in business. And this report says everything across the board is bad. Everything. You mentioned the headline, which is four months of shrinking economy. Well, there's five months of shrinking manufacturing. But let me go down the list. New orders are down for seven months in a row. Production is down four months in a row. Employment is down two months in a row. So what we see in that report that's coming out from the government, Tony, that's a delayed report. Businesses have been contracting in employment for two months now. Supplier deliveries are down for six months in a row. Inventories have been shrinking, Tony, for 78 months, customer inventories are shrinking. The, the list goes on and on, Tony. There's This is the worst report I've seen, and I've been looking at this report for about 20 years. Let's this take a step back. Take a step back with me, though. This report from, from the, it's the ISM, right? So it's the Institute for Supply Management. What are they using as their basis for where uh, manufacturers are, where inventories are, Talk to me about what is low. Talk to me about the concepts of contraction. Where are the places that make economists like you say that's a problem? Well, Tony, they get the information from purchasing managers and production managers. So they're they're on the phones every month calling up factories and businesses across the country. That's where the data comes from. 
And there's this, the number is 50. 50 is like the break-even line. If it's above 50, it's expanding. If it's below 50, it's contracting. And so let's just pick one of those numbers. Inventories. Customer inventories have been contracting for 78 months. That means the customers, the people who are buying the products, putting it on their shelves have said, we don't need as much. They're calling less. The back orders, new orders. Tony, eight months in a row now, new orders have shrunk. That means that for eight months, the people buying the stuff from the manufacturers and the wholesalers, they're saying, we don't need as much. Tony, that's an indicator of recession. When new orders are down, when inventories are down, when people aren't buying product. This is from the people that are making it. But They're the they, best leading they getting, indicator out there. Are they, but are they getting this, this word from the street that nobody wants it? Or is this still a supply chain issue that even if somebody wanted, they don't have the stuff they need to make it? Well, you know, Tony, that, there's, a, there's a wide range of issues on that. So there's a, the, the leading um, expert in the primary metals business had a quote in this report saying that they are still experiencing significant supply chain issues on several indirect supplies. So there's still problems with the supply chain that haven't been fixed, regardless of what Mayor Pete says, we're still having supply chain problems. I don't, I don't think anybody was relying on, on Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, to get it solved, which really brings to, uh, us to how bad is it still? Has the market worked in a way to try and solve some of these supply chain issues? Or are they really stymied? Are they screwed because government inaction prevents them from being able to take action? You know, Tony, I, I hate to say it, but it, it's, it's like, you know, it's like the market has been abused. Because every single quote that I read in this report from various companies have said they've, they've accepted the current state. They've accepted that this is the new status quo, that we're going to have supply chain problems, that you're going you're gonna to have to narrow your inventory selection. You know, I'm one of those people that buys uh, Chotskys for the university, and I can tell you that our suppliers, we've just accepted the fact that we don't have 10 choices for, you know, logoed shirts. We have two. We've just accepted that fact that there is less selection out there. Talking to you, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Let me go back to this 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 jobs report, right? With uh, growth totals at two hundred thirty six thousand. That's what everybody's going to be talking about today. And this was the the key points from CNN right here that non farm payrolls grew and it matched basically the estimate. Uh, the unemployment rate ticks down to 3.5%. The average hourly earnings rose 0.3%. So it's the, the, the lowest level since June of 2021. And the unemployment rate for black Americans at a record low. You tell me the Biden administration, Dr. Will, isn't going to cheer these numbers and that these numbers don't give them a reason to? Well, of course, they're going to cheer these numbers, Tony. They're going to cheer the fact that we have a shortage of workers on the front lines. You know, you go to a restaurant, you're going to wait in line. You go to get service at any retail establishment, you're going to have a problem. Tony, it's not because the economy is growing. The facts are that the economy isn't growing. The reality is that we still haven't covered, recovered from the, from the great recession we had during the pandemic. Tony, let's remember one very important thing. More businesses shut down during the pandemic than at any time in history, and they have not yet recovered. So when you go to the store and you see a line, Tony, there aren't as many stores. Don't think that the economy is doing great. The companies that are gone, that shut down, they haven't come back. That's why you see the line, because we still have a lack of supply on the retail side. 
this this lack of supply as we go back to this manufacturing report which you see as as not so much the canary in the coal mine but you're kind of making a different argument sir you're making the argument that the canary is dead it's been dead for a while and somebody just came across it um we've talked about this in some some other ways uh regarding banking if this has been months of decline in production if we are now in month four or five of contraction, although we've seen supplies uh, or inventories necessarily going down because there isn't a, any purchasing power to it. Um, when do we start actually seeing it in the real world? Or are we seeing it and we become inured to it, used to it, new normal to it? You know, Tony, that one point, it's a new normal, so we're used to it. And also we're confused. Going back to what we just talked about with retail, going to a store, a restaurant, we're confused because we see the long line at the restaurant. So we think the economy is good, but that's a different problem. That's a problem because we haven't recovered from all the businesses that shut down. So I can understand why people would be confused, but you have to look at yourself. How much do you pay when you're in that restaurant? I can't believe the bill that I get when I go out to eat, considering what it was two years ago. And Tony, we haven't talked about the participation rate, productivity being down, the probability of recession. There's a lot of bad indicators in the economy right now that support this four to five months of decline. I want to get an understanding of where do we get to the moment of, oh, this is the recession. At what moment do the Jamie Dimons over there at Chase, at what moment do the Janet Yellens, Secretary of the Treasury, at what moments do, does the IMF and a host of others say, you know what, there, 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 there's nothing else to smile about. We are in the great ugly. When does that moment come? Tony, it's already here, but they you got to understand public policy wants to mask it and give you a false impression. The private sector tells you the truth. The truth is Tesla cut their prices again because they can't sell their cars. That's a reality. You know, you see McDonald's laying people off. That's a fact. You see Amazon laying people off. That's a fact. You see FedEx announcing that they're profitable, but they're profitable because they're cutting their expenses to the bone. That's a fact. So Look at what private businesses are doing. Again, the long lines, Tony, is a lack of supply chain. It hasn't been fixed yet. We have fewer choices, and we haven't recovered from the pandemic from all those businesses that closed. Now, uh, one of the comments, uh, and I'll read it to you here, prices are going up, but wages are not going to have the wave effect. I'm not sure if they're just uh, making, uh, you know, saying it's just going to continue to grow and build. I don't know if that's an actually economic term, but are you seeing that prices going up, but wages aren't, or it doesn't matter if wages are going up because the inflation is taking away that buying power? Um, well, it's, it's, it's the latter, Tony. We've seen wages going up, but they haven't gone up as much as inflation. And that's where the rub is coming in. A part two which is how do we work our way out of the situation? Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, you are very, very fond of an argument, sir. And the argument is, is that Jerome Powell and Joe Biden are locked in a battle to the death where you have Joe Biden spending going on and you have Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, his desire to counteract that by raising interest rates which was made harder for jerome powell 
because you now have the bank issue where banks like Silicon Valley Bank, we saw it there first, heavily into the bonds. The bonds lose value when interest rates go up. They can't properly take care of their depositors. Next thing you know, they're getting what can only be described as a bailout from you, me and we. You add on to that Janet Yellen telling small banks, you know what? We're not going to necessarily protect you because you aren't a systemic risk. We're really going to protect our friends over here on this side. And you're going to have to fend for yourself, which is moving depositors from small banks to larger regional banks or larger institutionalized uh, uh, banks. This fight between Jerome Powell, which has been made much tougher on him now, and Joe Biden on the spending side. This fight doesn't seem to have an end in sight either when, as we've discussed, you take a look at Biden's budget. The market eventually has to react to this, but they haven't done it yet. I'm asking you to look into the crystal ball. When will they? You know, you always you always do that, Tony. Always. You always try to slip in a prediction. Sir, that's right. This is how it works in the big city. I, I can't tell you when the market's going to react to this. I, it, okay, I can tell you this. The market's volatile. You notice how the market goes up and down and up and down, and it's constantly fluctuating because the market is on the sidelines waiting to see how this fight uh, plays out. So, I, Tony, I don't know where the market's going to go, but I can tell you the market is nervous. You know it's nervous because it's fluctuating. So one day it's up a lot, one day it's down a lot because it's sitting on the sidelines watching this, this boxing match between these two individuals. And right now, Jerome Powell is on the ropes and Biden is winning because he squeezed him to have to do a bailout of some of these banks, which increase the balance sheet of the Fed, which is another complicated topic, but it's it's that's that's fueling inflation. Let's talk about some of these reports, sir. As, as we go over them, as you look at them, Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. What exactly are they looking at? When we talk about manufacturing, you talk about uh, we we talk about the um, total lack of of uh, what's the word a supply. What is it that's actually being looked at? What are the numbers that economists like yourself are taking a look at to figure out the problem? Well, there's two numbers that I'm looking at right now, Tony. One is productivity. Productivity is the percentage of uh, production per hour of labor. Historically, it always goes up because we have computers, we have innovation, we can do more per hour. Tony, the amount of work that you do amazes me how you're able to run multiple platforms at the same time. You couldn't have done that 10 years ago. Technology has made you more productive. Last year was the first year that I can recall, I look back as a couple of decades, where we had a 7% decline in productivity. That is government-induced. That's regulation-induced. It's caused by people who are getting in your way and keeping you from being productive. 7% last year. I've never seen a year with that big of a decline, Tony. That's one of the big factors that we're looking at right now. So is, is when you see that, when you when 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 you envision that, what is the formula that you then put to it? Is there a formula that you're putting to it just for the moment to figure out where we are in a snapshot in time? Or does that formula actually have a way of really playing out for us, the American people, as to how long it will take to correct? Or is it the forces that go into the formula are so unpredictable? Biden spending, et cetera, that all you could do is come up with a number. You can't come up with a time certain of when this is over. You know, Tony, actually, the person who can predict that best is you, because it's a political problem. When the Department of Energy or Department of Agriculture sends another regulator to a farmer, that decreases productivity. 
when they say you are required to buy a, a green energy uh, car rather than a car of your choice, that reduces productivity. When they divert money from one industry by saying, hey, banks, you can't loan money unless a company has a great ESG rating. You can't loan money to oil companies. The government and the politics is what's causing that to go down because they're putting roadblocks in front of you, Tony. That's socialism. I'm a numbers guy, but the bigger problem is the political problem that's getting in the way of market efficiency. I mean, that's uh, that's the frightening stuff. That's the stuff that that has us uh, concerned. And, and you know, the, the, the type of economist you are and, and certainly you've been on, not, not been shy with me and all the time that we've known each other and the and the conversations that you have. It's not how we usually hear economists talk, you know, that our problem with our economy is a political problem. Are economists discussing this loudly? No, Tony, because as you know, and you, you point out, I'm a financial economist. I'm a guy that understands Wall Street and banking and those items. I'm not a classical theoretical economist. You know, those people that look at the, uh, the age old uh, marginal cost and marginal supply curves. Um, I look at reality. And so the reality is that the economists who live in ivory towers, they just look at the data that comes across their desk. They don't understand the source of the data and who creates the data. And the person that creates it is a politician. That is scary. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. So as you you take a look at this number and you take a look at that manufacturing number, you take a look at what the Biden administration is going to cheer today uh, about jobs numbers. It all goes back into people playing their political games and we are still stuck. Your response is yes, we are stuck. And there's nothing about the detail numbers that tells us we are even beginning to be prepared to get unstuck. No. And, and I will go back, and I mentioned this the other day when we spoke, go back and look at Joe Manchin's uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal. He said that the president lied to him, and he supported an initiative. He got a vote to get things through for the Inflation Reduction Act. And in fact, the president totally reneged on his agreement, and we've gone in a negative economic direction as a result. If you want to believe that regarding Joe Manchin, you are more than welcome to. I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to stop you. Uh, but Joe Manchin knew exactly what he was doing. Joe Manchin had to have known he was getting played. And if he didn't know he was getting played, then the people of West Virginia have got to start making some serious, serious decisions because you can't be that daft and still be in the U.S. Senate. OK, maybe you could be Senator John Fetterman. But that's <laughs> the most you can do. Truly the very most. Dr. Matt Will, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. So a lot being made of this judge who is overseeing this Trump case, the charges by the Manhattan D.A., Alvin uh, Bragg about how uh, he has donated to Biden and his daughter worked for Kamala Harris. Well, his daughter working for Kamala Harris is a big deal, right? That is a big deal. But they've been taking a look at how much money this guy donated to Biden. Um, 15 bucks to Biden for president, $10 to the Progressive Turnout Project, and a $10 contribution to something called Stop Republicans. It's not a lot of money, but it is, however, a trend towards a specific purpose or theory 
or ideology. I mean, that much you can say, and I think I think you should say. I think you should most definitely say. But really, with some this, the, the the judge is a story, and the judge family is a story in terms of whether or not you think Trump can get a a, a fair trial. There's a whole conversation about where in New York is he going to get a fair trial. How about the idea? of what these charges really are, what they mean for America, what they do to America, what this abuse actually is. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, he breaks it all down and beautifully. May I add, keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. The nothing burger that is the indictment on Donald Trump. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. It is indeed a nothing burger. And I hate that expression, nothing burger. But it happens to fit. 34 charges, all in the same charge. I mean, I had this conversation with William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com, breaking this down. And the only question that mattered is, any surprises in this indictment? Anything that makes you say, my gosh, there's a case here? Well, it was waiting for the bombshell. Okay, it was waiting for the thing we didn't know about. It was waiting for some surprise that never showed up. I think I had predicted on your show earlier when we spoke about this that the 34 counts were probably one or two or three checks that they're going to take every entry in a computer or ledger or wherever and turn it up into 34 counts. And that's what it appears to be. I think my count might be slightly off, but I don't think, I think there were 11 checks mentioned in the indictment, 11 ledger entries, um, 11 invoices. I'm not sure what the 34th was. <laughs> Got to go back over that. But this is basically a very small number of payments that every time there was an entry someplace, they are calling that a separate crime. So it's for show. They could have done it all in one count. They didn't need to do it this way. And uh, of course, we don't know the key thing here, what is the mysterious other law he was trying to violate? I want to get into that with you. I'm going to jump right in. You talk about the 34 and, and the process. Uh, legally, it's referred to as stacking. When you don't have a lot, you make one thing look like a lot of things. So you stack them one on top of the other. So if you have 11 checks and you have seven journal entries and four of this and two of those, it's like Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack. <laughs> give me two of those. Give me six of those. Give me a couple yeah. of naked lady tees. That's the stacking. So that's the process that Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in Manhattan, used in in this case. But what you're bringing up is this idea that what Trump did in paying Stormy Daniels the way he did was that this was an intent to uh, to well, engage a fraud and it does engage another crime, but he doesn't mention what the crime is. And as a matter of fact, in the press conference that the DA Alvin Bragg had, he states that he doesn't have to mention what the other crime is. How does that pass uh, your sniff test? Uh, it doesn't pass it in any case, but it certainly doesn't pass it in what legally is a groundbreaking case of bringing a an indictment against a former president and leading political opponent. Uh, the president of, I forget if it was Guatemala or Honduras, um, put out a tweet uh, about that if this happened in any other country where a major political opponent was arrested on flimsy charges based on a far-fetched legal theory with little disclosure, we would we would laugh at that. We would not call that democracy. 
And that's what's happened here. It may be that Trump did everything Alvin Bragg said, that there were false checks, false, but it would never, we know, it would never be prosecuted against anybody else. And it was only prosecuted because Donald Trump's running for president. I don't think there's a person on the face of this earth who thinks that this case would have been brought if three months ago or four months ago, Donald Trump had announced, I am not running for president again. Uh, so that's what this is about. This has all the appearances of a political prosecution. And you're right. There are a lot of commenters from the left who recognize this is really weak stuff. Uh, there's a guy at Vox who is, you know, usually brutal towards people like Trump. And even he said, you know, this is not the sort of legal theory that you bring the first time a former president is going to be indicted, that this thing, whole thing could collapse. There were numerous, numerous legal infirmities with it, legal unquestioned, you know, or unresolved legal questions. And this is not what you do to a former president and political opponent. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. You should go check that out. Uh, I noted uh, earlier on uh, the morning radio show that even National Review, which is not a fan of Trump, is looking at this indictment and saying, you know, to, to quote Peter Griffin and Family Guy, come on, what is what what is this? Uh, the, the the what is this part? Of course, you mentioned the fact that if it wasn't Trump, if his last name wasn't Trump, this wouldn't be going forward. But now this goes in front of a judge. Now, the judge that we're discussing here, who Trump actually went after a little bit uh, in his speech, which I was kind of uh, amazed by. The argument is you're the defendant. You can go after anybody you want. It's a free country. You can say anything you want about anybody. That doesn't mean that you necessarily should. And I was curious to get your thoughts on how Trump's defense team may have felt about that line regarding the judge in this case. But a judge looking at this case knows what you know. So how do they look at this case and allow it to go forward? Well, there's a great deal of deference given to the prosecutors to present their case the way they want to. So a judge is only going to throw this out is if there's some legal problem with it. And many people have pointed out there are many potential legal problems with it, uh, including it's a novel theory that uh, a county prosecutor, this isn't even a state attorney general, that a county prosecutor can upgrade a misdemeanor to a felony based on an alleged intent to violate a federal law when the person has not been charged with actually violating the federal law. So this is like a hypothetical. If Donald Trump intended to violate a federal law, can we upgrade this from misdemeanor to felony? So this is like a law school exam, except it's not law school, it's real life. And it's a gross interference in our political process. It's a gross manipulation of the Republican primaries. I think that, you know, the, the obvious thing is it's an attempt to get Trump. I mean, that's clear, right. but it's also a manipulation because as I think was pointed out or on Tucker Carlson last night, he didn't necessarily endorse it, but he pointed out that one of the theories here is that the Democrats, this is their master manipulation, that they are not only going to raise Trump to martyr status so that he gets the Republican nomination. They're also going to dirty him up in the court case so that he can't get elected president in the general election. Because people have to remember that a lot of the reaction coming from Republicans is to rally around Trump. 
That's not necessarily the reaction in the rest of the country. That's not necessarily the reaction, you know, with the so-called suburban women who, you know, sunk the campaign for Trump last time. So this is really yeah, but the the, the appears the, to be a master manipulation by Democrats. You know, the 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 the, the politics of this is is there's a tremendous number of ways that this can go. Some people look at this and says this this will poison independence against Trump because look at what a criminal he is. Look at how terrible he is. The other side of that is. Independents already know that the man's got character flaws. This looks like, feels like, and smacks of a witch hunt. I want to share with you something that Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, said. Listen to this. The New York Supreme Court indictment returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State. No matter who you are, we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor. Isn't this exactly what Alvin Bragg does in New York all the time when he looks the other way and doesn't prosecute here and doesn't go after this criminal? He's normalizing criminal behavior left and right. Trump's different. How does it not smack to a judge, never mind everybody else, as a purely political attack? Yeah, I don't think a judge is going to care that it's political. It's either a legitimate indictment, it's either legitimate criminal charges, or it's not. I don't think the judge is going to care about the politics. Uh, We don't know this judge. Maybe he likes those politics. It doesn't matter. We hope he'll reach a neutral legal decision as to whether this is viable. But Alvin Bragg is a joke. I mean, that press conference, it was a complete joke. There's right after the clips you played, he talks about how important business records are in New York because it's a financial capital of the world. Who are you kidding? You allow street criminals to run wild in the streets. You've de- you decriminalized a whole host of crimes, some of them violent crimes, um, your first day in office. This is a sick joke for Alvin Bragg to stand up there and claim that business records are so important and so vital to our democracy and so vital to our criminal into our financial system that he must prosecute this, that nobody believes that. I don't think Alvin Bragg believes that. The only reason he made those statements is because he's a laughing stock. Uh, he is somebody who is going to go down, I predict, if these charges get dismissed, like Mike Nifong did in, in uh, the Duke lacrosse case. Wow, nice call. Okay, be- for a malicious prosecution of those students. Alvin Bragg, has now got to justify what Alvin Bragg has done. And that's what that press conference was about. The Mike Nifong poll is a, ve- that's a really interesting comparison. The Duke lacrosse rape case. Uh, I, I, that's, I first started doing radio covering that. I, that's an incredibly interesting uh, comparison uh, piece uh, right there. Do me a favor, William Jacobson. Stay uh, right there. I want to talk to you just a, a little bit more. Let me, uh, on the radio side, uh, Matt Bear has got the traffic. What's up, Matthew? William, uh, 
that was the closest I've seen you um, almost get to cursing on my show. Like <laughs> in, in, in the concept of anger, you talk to other legal professionals. You speak to people who are on the political left who are legal professionals. You work with people who are on the political left who are legal professionals. You speak to, to law students. You're training uh, that, that, that future. Are you telling me that people aren't outraged by what they're seeing? Not only is, is it a fraud, based on what we've seen in the indictment, they know it. They know it's political as you describe it. Do you ever see anybody saying, holy damn, this is screwed up? No, I don't, because things have become so politicized. I think they know it. Some commentators, and I just pointed out somebody at Vox has done that, and, and elsewhere in the left-leaning press have, have recognized that this is really on shaky ground. And this is not this is not what they wanted to charge Trump with, okay? They wanted something bigger. They wanted something solid. Uh, but there is such hatred of Trump out there. Trump derangement syndrome is a real thing. It's not just a saying. And so there's so much hatred of him out there. I think there will be a lot of people who, who really couldn't care less. They just want him to go down. Uh, and that's unfortunate. So I, I, that's why I'm saying we don't know. We're in a little bit of a bubble. I'm in a bubble at my website. Um, your readership is your uh, viewership and, and your listeners are probably leaning towards the right. Um, we don't know how the rest of the country is going to react. This is not the most important thing probably to the rest of the country. And that point cannot be made enough. My thanks to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com. This doesn't matter to the country. Now, don't get me wrong, it should, because what we're seeing from Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, is fully abusive, and the people angry with the judiciary, the House Judiciary Committee, uh, it's Jim Jordan, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio and others, we want information on this, we want access to this data, oh, you're interfering in an investigation. There's nothing here, and you know it. The judge allowing this to go forward is the problem. We should be disgusted by this happening, it should be absolutely universal, bipartisan. Alvin Bragg is wrong and out of his head. That isn't the conversation about whether or not you like Trump. It's about whether or not you're okay with this banana republic fakakta crazy nonsense. If you're angry with Jim Jordan for getting involved, your anger is misplaced because Alvin Bragg did the thing that no rational person should have done or would have done. So why is your why is your um your 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 value system so askew? Why aren't you focused on the guy who politicized the DA's office in Manhattan? Cyrus Vance, the former DA, hated Trump, didn't do this didn't do this because there's no there 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 is no there there hatred for trump sure you think he's unethical absolutely you think he's a miracle immoral you think he's immoral feel free bring felony charges that's the whole story that's the story and the more we avoid that story the more we don't say this is disgusting this is obscene in, in a bipartisan way, in a total nonpartisan way. This is just beneath us. The more we don't do that, the less chances we have of a good future. 
So, yeah, be mad at Jim Jordan all you want. But, you know, you guys did this. You did this. Now, now you got to deal with the consequences. They never seem to want to deal with the consequences. So I take one day off and Governor Eric Holcomb signs SB 480, putting an end to puberty blockers and surgeries for the purpose of changing a child's gender, which can't be done anyway. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, guys, it is so good to be back, so good to be with you. 833-468-8669. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. I didn't know if he would sign it or not. I really didn't. I, I was absolutely unsure because he is the guy who didn't go forward with the legislation that would keep boys out of girls sports. He said it's not a problem here, and he vetoed it, and that veto got overridden. Maybe he didn't want that political issue to take place. Maybe he needed to sign it because he wants to run for another office. Maybe he signed it because he believes it, right? There's there's nothing to be said that that's not possible, but this is the governor who said that it was clear as mud, the legislation. So I would be curious to know what changed his mind. How did the mud become clear for Governor Eric Holcomb? I would love to know the answer to that question. I would love to find that out if anybody could Tell me, I would love to speak to the governor about it, but he doesn't, his staff doesn't answer questions. He doesn't answer questions. It's the strangest stuff in the world. He just doesn't. It's like the outside world doesn't exist. And people, the minute this happened, oh, the ACLU is suing. Oh, the ACLU is going to sue. Look at them. They're suing. Yeah, guys, guys, don't confuse your issues. Of course they're suing. Legislation often gets a, a challenge. Of course it does. Your response is to keep fighting. Your response is to keep protecting kids. Your response is to not stop. Abusing kids is wrong. Don't ever stop. It doesn't matter if they sue. You don't wait. You keep going. You keep ensuring you're protecting kids from what is really madness. Social contagion madness as we've been discussing and we'll discuss more of it. Find it all at TonyCats.Locals.com Tomorrow everyone, I'm sorry Monday everyone, take care. Well that's, that's their problem, not mine. Keep it here, I'm Tony Katz.